Welcome back, listeners, for our final episode of the third season. This week, we are talking to Allison Yost about Tralita's Grave, which sits at the intersection of US-19 and Highway 60 near Dahlonega, Georgia. Roadside America will tell you that this is the site of a Cherokee princess grave. And as Ben Fry taught us earlier this season, we should always be a little bit skeptical of that phrase. Allison breaks down the story for us and explains not only what it says about how we think about the past, but what it means for how we imagine the present. I'm Gina Kaysen, and this is About South. Welcome back to the last episode of About South of Season 3, and we are so excited to have with us today Allison Yost, who, full disclosure, was an MA student of mine who wrote this thesis that completely, like, mind-blown. When she first told me what she wanted to write about, I didn't know anything about it except, like, that sounds like the weirdest thing I've ever heard. And I almost didn't believe her that it was even a thing. And then she wrote a whole thesis about it. And she is here to share the story with us today. And I don't want to spoil anything for the audience about just how odd and fascinating and troubling this whole pile of stones is. And by I literally mean a pile of stones. So to begin, Allison, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. It's so good to see you. Yeah, it's good to see you too. What is the legend of Tralita? So I was going to start by reading the text that's on the historical marker, which is the first iteration that I was made aware of. So I thought that would be a good place to start. It sounds kind of dramatic. Okay, take Um, it away. So, this pile of stones marks the grave of a Cherokee princess, Trilita. According to legend, her tribe, living on Cedar Mountain, north of here, knew the secret of the magic springs of eternal youth from the witch of Cedar Mountain. Trilita, kidnapped by a rejected suitor, Wasega, was taken far away and lost her beauty. As she was dying, Wasega promised to bury her there, near her home and the magic springs. Custom arose among the Indians and later the whites to drop stones, one for each passerby, on her grave for good fortune. The magic springs, now known as Porter Springs, lie three quarters of a mile northeast of here. (laughs) Okay, I have so (laughs) many questions. Um, So, how were you introduced to the story of Tralita? You drove past this pile of stones so just explain like what is it in addition to this historical marker yeah so I before I did my MA at Georgia State I did my undergraduate degree at the University of North Georgia which is in Dahlonega and I was in your native southern studies class and so one of the things that first came to my mind is the fact that the name Dahlonega itself is quote-unquote a Cherokee name for gold Dahlonega is one of the earliest sites of the gold rush. 
And I was really fascinated by the place names thing. Like, why would we keep place names from Cherokee words, right? And I remember beginning to do some research about that, looking at place names, and I found this story about the stones. And I remember telling you, and I think I said it kind of as a side, and you were like, wait, 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 wait. Go back to that Cherokee princess stone pile grave thing? Yeah. That's I mean, what your project is. Yes. That's your project. And you were right. <laughs> that, that's what it's like to be one of my students. Is someone mentioned something that they think is odd, and I'm like, skirt. Like Basically, yeah. yeah. You were like, no, that's it. That's that's what you want to find out more about. Okay, so I'm with this pile of stones. I'm driving down the road. Just put me in the place. I'm driving down the road, and there is a literal pile of stones. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And that is supposedly Tralita's grave. Yes. Is, okay, is anything about this real? Well, real is such a complicated word, isn't it? I don't know if you're aware of. (laughs) (laughs) Real is a complicated word. Especially in regards to the South now. Yes. And and folklore as well. Um, It is real as in there is a literal pile of stones there, and there is a Georgia historical marker. Um, Do I think that anybody is buried underneath there? No. Do I think that this story has Cherokee origins? Also no. But is it real for the people of Dahlonega that it is part of their folklore? Yes. So complicated answer, I think. Yeah, I think that's a fair answer, though. Um, now, there's also some... How tall is the pile of stones? I mean, it's pretty tall. So I, while I was doing the project, I went up to Dahlonega to talk to some local people there. And I also was like, well, while I'm here, obviously, I have to like go to the stones, right? Um, but it's actually at the intersection of two highways. There's not like a parking lot to go to this place. So you just kind of park your car on the side of a highway, which is also like on a mountain. So I like park my car. I almost fall down the mountain actually while I'm up there. I like kind of slide down a few feet. I was like, okay, this almost just took a turn. Maybe it is cursed. I don't know. Um, but I walk up and it's a huge pile of stones. I mean, taller than a person. It's it's massive. And there's the big historical marker and just a ton of stones. And you see some of the stones are even individualized. People have drawn on them or painted them or added little designs to them. But it's it's massive. And so people will go by, they'll leave a stone, and then is there some, if I remember correctly, there's some corresponding, like you mentioned, a curse. Yeah, it's it's interesting because that actually has changed over time. I think in earlier versions, we're talking more in regards of it's, you leave a stone as a sign of respect. And then it, it kind of evolved into leaving a stone for good luck. And then in more recent versions from that I've heard, people have mentioned leave a stone or else. And there's actually been in recent versions that I found online, this introduction of, which I've found no evidence to support this, but that some construction company tried to move the pile of stones, but there were all these mysterious deaths. So they decided to leave it alone. Oh, but that maybe did. But I don't think that's true because I never found any sort of news articles or anything about I don't know why anybody would try to remove it because there's it's not near anything so I don't (laughs) (laughs) like why would you just okay there's a pile of stones here why would you be like wow need to clean up these stones yeah I don't know but um yeah so that's another interesting thing that I really found is over time 
the magical elements, I guess, changed, right? From a little more, yeah, you get a little something extra, you get a little good luck, to like, you better do it or else you'll be cursed. Now, according to your research, where did this whole mythology of Tralita, who was the first person to cast the stone? And like, where did the story come from? Because I think you're right. It, it doesn't really, it's not attached to any kind of like Cherokee reality oral tradition. It's something that appears at some other time, correct? Mm-hmm. So where? So from what I was able to find, I think somebody gave the specific year of like, I don't know, 1868, but maybe 1860s, 1870s. So basically 1860s, 1870s, we have um, this, this land is just somebody's property and there's folks going through it. And um, Reverend McKee happened to find this natural spring, right? Like you might find in the mountains, you know. And in, the, in his retellings of that moment, he says, I was reminded of an old Cherokee legend that I'd heard from my Cherokee friends about a magic spring at this very site. And not very long thereafter, they opened a hot spring hotel resort in that very area. And one of the features of that resort was you could go on this little like pilgrimage to Trilita's magical springs. So like many things, I think it might have started as an advertisement. It's a market. <laughs> it's, yeah, it was a the marketing answer is thing. marketing, <laughs> as it so often is. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so it's a hot <clears throat> spring, and then so the town of Delonaga, um, indeed, was in Cherokee Nation territory. Um, is taken in the land lottery and in the removal in the 1830s. So then how does Dahlonega pick up this kind of legendary sort of Cherokee lore from what was a genocidal history? Like, mm-hmm. how does this morph into this story of Trilita? Well, and that's something I kind of asked myself as well, was I was like, why are people so attached to something like this, right? Like, what... What does it hold? And I think for me, it kind of comes back to it's ritualistic, which people, you know, so there's an actual physical space. There's a ritual. So that really, I think, attracts people as far as like folklore is concerned. Um, I think that gives it a lot more staying power. It's not just oral. And I think there's this sense and I and I see this in like blog posts and things about people making a pilgrimage to go visit. There's this sense of being able to connect with the land. And I think it goes back to the, the thing, especially that we see in the South of, if I can be like connected, I can be a native, right? And I think it also can go back a little bit to this desire for a creation story, right? Um, because it's framed as like kind of the beginnings, the prehistory of this area. And then there's still this artifact that you can visit and you can be part of it. And and um, in some of these blog posts, I've seen people talk about how they felt it, like they could feel the spirit of Trilita with them and they're connected to it, you know, so they can kind of feel that same connection to the nativeness of the land. So I think that's a really big part of it, of what attracts people. It's like some other kind of catharsis, effective, like whiteness, because I mean to say I feel connected to the spirit of Tralita, there there is no, like, well, you're actually not connected to anything. But you're like, well, I put this stone here, so I feel that I've done some sort of 
ceremony that contacts my non-indigenous self yeah. to this space. See? Yeah. And I, I'm looking at some quotes that I, I took specifically from some of these blog posts, and we have things of just, um, you know, I, I had a sense of peace and calm come over me. Maybe it's the fact that I, too, love these North Georgia mountains so much, but I felt Trulita's presence that day, right? Because at the core of the Trulita story, and we see this in the different iterations, it's, it's kind of a metaphor for as soon as she was taken away from her land, she started to die. Oh. Being connected to the land and to the space, to the springs, is what was keeping her young and beautiful. Even in some versions, we see that she is actually like 100 years old or something. And she's kept youthful by these springs and by being with the land. And as soon as she's taken away, that's when she starts to wither and die. So it's also got the vanishing Indian stereotype like wrapped up in it. Mm-hmm. God, it's doing so much at the same time. This is why I loved this project, because I was just like, oh, there's just... And... It's all there. Oh, no. We have... Um, so if you're familiar with Dahlonega, they have the Gold Rush Days Festival, which started in the 1950s, which is supposed to be um, kind of an old-timey, you know, kind of common, I, I think, in a lot of southern places where they try and do like an old-timey festival. Um, and... In the first year of it, they actually did a play called There's Gold and Them Thar Hills. And the first act of the play was the story of Trilita. And it has a very interesting, like, uh, apologetic tone, almost, of the white man pressed upon the Cherokee. One piece of land after another was sold until, as years passed by, the people, dispossessed of their lands, begin to turn their faces towards the west in search of a peaceful resting place. Small bands of hunters crossed the Mississippi to explore the lands and hope for what might be beyond. They lived as the Cherokee had lived years before, before they had ever known the white man or experienced the workings of his heart of stone. That's removal. laughing and also cringing at how horrible this is in a lot of ways but i'd like to say i mean you're from dahlonega right i mean more or less i've lived there yeah. you've lived there and you don't hate the town no and a lot of people who work in the town and are local historians and stuff really helped you with this work oh yeah so how do you balance all the troubling things about this legend with your sincere appreciation for the town how do you talk to people in Dahlonega about well maybe this is not the best way to think about this space honestly that's I think one of the most uplifting things of all is the fact that I've everyone I talked to was so interested in the project I didn't meet anybody not that I talked to everybody in the whole town but I didn't talk to anybody how, who was like how dare you blah 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 it I only spoke to people who were so excited. They were like, tell me about it. Is it real? What's the story? Like, what's the history of it? I want to know. I want to know more. Um, so I think 
really people are open-minded. They want to know more about this and in a realistic way, not in a, you know, hearing what they want to hear way. I think a lot of people really want to know the truth of this whole story. And, and I don't think most people are perpetuating it based on some sort of willful ignorance. I think it generally is, there's not a lot of public material about the background of this story. And I think people really just don't think about it. And what do you think the town, a town like Dahlonega that has this post-removal genealogy, what are stories like this and stories about the gold rush, what does it reveal about the town or just about the Southern Appalachians in Georgia? I think it reveals an anxiety about not being native. And I think the idea of nativeness and authenticity is really central to a lot of feeling Southern, right? And so being able to conflate yourself with what you see as genuine nativeness kind of gives you that feeling. And I think there is also genuinely a lot of feeling of guilt. I mean, a lot of people are approaching this story from the from the idea of like, isn't it so terrible? Even that ending, although it was really whitewashing, she's saying like, how terrible is it? Like we, you know, took away these people's way of life. It's a, it's a guilt narrative. Yeah, I think it's a guilt narrative. And I think, I think too, there's some element of having a place to go, having a, like, what is the purpose of graves for people who are alive to mourn, right? And I think that this grave functions in that way for, for people too. Which, yeah, it's still problematic because it's a fake mourning at the core. But they don't know that. I think people are going to it, though, in genuine feeling of mourning for the people that were lost and the culture that was lost. Right. Without even... And what's interesting about that is without a recognition that, like, it's not lost. It's just you're not seeing it. Exactly. Because you're focused on this pile of stones that's made up. Yeah, and that's my other big concern with it as well, is I feel like the way that this narrative is used in a lot of art and literature is really... I mean, even in that original quote, right, from the person who originally found the springs and made it into a hotel, that person had lived in the area with Cherokee people, but he was choosing to use a story that made it sound like they'd only been there thousands of years ago, right? Like, prehistory. So it's very much erasing the real history, like the real overlap history there, I think. I look at it optimistically, like I think people, this shows that people genuinely have an interest and want to know more about the native southern heritage of the area, but they just don't necessarily have the resources or access. Right, they don't know where to look. Exactly. Because that's what we have right now is like that (laughs) pile of stones, you know? Yeah, and it's a it's a narrative. Trolita isn't talking back to you, mm-hmm. right? Versus where people may feel uncomfortable or intimidated or they feel like they don't know how to talk to living Native people about these issues. And so it's a little bit easier to mm-hmm. leave a stone for a, a dead girl made mm-hmm. up than it is to say, oh, well, what's my continued kind of responsibility? Here. And I'm not saying people are doing that intentionally to sidestep it, but that it allows for that sidestepping. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why do you think that the even the Georgia Department of Transportation, why do they even let the stone pile persist? I don't know. That's an interesting thing that I wasn't 
able to find out a lot about, but I really wanted to find out how did that historical marker get put up there? Right. Right? I mean, because that's from the state. Like, it's a state historical marker. So how did that happen? I'm not really sure. Um, I wasn't able to find, unfortunately, a lot of documentation about its origins. It says on the marker, I believe, 1953. But, yeah, so right around the start of when they had, like, gold rush days and people were starting to get interested in the past. But, yeah, I wonder that myself, how that how that came to be, how it came to be like a state created documentation of the area. And it's something that's folklore. It's not history. No. It's, a, it's a historic, <laughs> it's a historical marker though. If you look at all the other historical markers around there for historical events. So yeah, there's like a, most historical markers have at least a grain, <laughs> even if the story that's oh, yeah, told on them. Some of them are a little flawed to be sure, but yeah, they're about, History. A war was, a, a battle was here, or, you know, somebody died here, something important happened here. But then we also have one that's truly just buried here. Who is not a real person. Who I don't believe is a real person. I have had people be shocked. Like, I've, I've had times when I was teaching even where I would tell the story to my students, and I'd tell the whole story, and then I'd go, and it's fake. And they all gasp, like, oh, fake. How could it be? And also, <laughs> this, I, <laughs> you can imagine like a room full of 18 year olds, like actively listening to the story. And then I'm like, but this is all just made up. It's like just marketing. And they gasp like, <gasps> people do that? Um, which I think, and that's the thing is like, I don't feel like I can just, because this, this story is problematic. I don't feel like we can just call out Delonica for that. This is a story, this this type of story exists all over the place. People are willing to believe it, right? That it's an actually like a Cherokee story because stuff like this is completely pervasive, right? In our culture of what Cherokee folklore is like, right? Oh, absolutely. Blowing Rock has Blowing a story Rock. like mm-hmm. this. I mean, there's so many places that have these stories about some... Tragic Indian story. Yeah. It's an American, a white American phenomenon, Yeah, actually. Yeah. So that's, I, I think that's part of it, too, for me, is I'm like, I can't blame people for buying into it slash just taking it at face value that it is a Cherokee story, because why wouldn't they? I mean, that's... The message we've been given is that that's the kind of stories that Cherokee people had, although that's not really true. But to me, it's just like another installment and in like a larger fake narrative. of the various versions of the story that have been told. So I know there's the one from the historical marker. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of complicated versions, I think, between her father or this warrior boyfriend. <laughs> like, what What are all the kind of oddities in the various ways the story's been told over time? So we have 
started with oral tradition, right? We have this guy, quote unquote, remembering the story the the cheer his Cherokee friends told him, which could or could not be true, um, likely untrue, or at the very least, I, I did find that there there were instances of Cherokee people purposefully trying to play into some of these like romantic narratives to try and gain sympathy and to you know as a way of trying to fight back. So it theoretically is possible somebody told him that story, but you know it wasn't from the traditional Cherokee um, mythology. Um, and then we have a short story actually published. Um, that's the first written publication. A very flowery version, very long, very romanticized. Um, and I believe the next, I'm thinking the next published version after that is we have the play that I referenced that was for Gold Rush Days Festival, which once again, it had that as the first act of the story of Gold Rush. So I find that very interesting. That's the quote unquote prehistory of the area in that regard. And then we have the historical marker. And then there hadn't, well, that I was able to find, there weren't a lot of public, published versions. Um, but with the advent of the internet, Trilita, Trilita went digital. <laughs> she she's actually fairly popular online. I was able to find two songs written about her, as well as a f quite a few blog posts. Like I said, that kind of track the pilgrimage of going to the site. Um, and the the biggest version is there was actually a novel published in 2012 um, called Auroria. Which, if you're unfamiliar, Auroria is another. It was kind of like. I don't know if competitor's the right word, but a competitor town with Dahlonega during the gold rush. And Dahlonega built up and is still around today, and Aurora is now, you know, a ghost town. Um, but Trilita is actually a main character in this novel, and it's a pretty interesting interpretation of her. I, uh, from what I've read of the author, Tim Westover, I don't think he subscribes to the truth of the original Trilita story either. Uh, he said that in interviews that he's like, I don't think anybody's buried there. Right. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> um, this is not a sacred burial mound. Yeah. He's, he's like, I don't, I don't think that's, but he, yeah. And kind of in the novel itself kind of comments on the, the story too. Um, so she's been all over the place. She's really popular. She's the most popular topic. They have an eighth grade writing contest at the local, I guess, middle school, eighth grade. And yeah, Trilita is one of the most popular topics. It's also tragic that in Georgia, we have a pile of stones that's an Indian grave with a historical marker that is not real, mm -hmm. is not an actual burial mound. Mm -hmm. And all over the Southeast, real burial mounds and real sacred sites get just obliterated by development. Yeah. But a fake pile of stones has a marker and protected, quasi-protected status, I guess. At least a curse. I mean, maybe. <laughs> right. At the very least, a DOT um, curse. Yeah, and I think, and I think that's what it kind of comes back to, to me, is that this is really um, something that belongs to Dahlonega, right? It's... Um, not real in the sense that it belongs to Cherokee mythology, but it's definitely people feel as though it belongs to them, right? And I feel like maybe that's part of why it's easier 
for people to like. You know, I mean, it's a not fun story, but, you know, it's a romantic, like, very to our sensibilities, very accessible story, right? And it's more simple and straightforward, and it doesn't take place after, you know, white people get here, right? It's part of, quote-unquote, prehistory. I don't know. It's a, it just kind of, the story happens in some sort of... <laughs> Mythical time space that's prior to Some sort invasion. of time before time, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and so I wonder if that's part of it. The fact that it is fake is what makes it easier for people to attach to because it's been carved into a way that fits for the people who use it right I mean so what's not to love it's you know it's not even a story that you have to try and connect to even though it feels like you can't connect to it it was made for for the people there by them so it's easy to connect to and so it's a narrative that's like easy to attach to yeah, that's that's one thing I tried to look at too a little bit is with this the idea of memorials and gravesites and ghosts and yeah that's that is a common theme right the the um, the Indian ghost that kind of haunts the American imagination and I think the Southern imagination particularly right and yeah I I go back to I think really a lot of it is people want a place to go to and quote unquote mourn and then they don't have to feel bad anymore yeah like because they're they are then not part of the bad white people who killed and were part of removal they're the ones who sympathize they can connect right they're also part of it so then they can kind of detach themselves from any sort of problems or guilt that that might be there yeah that little stone is like leave all your guilt here Mm -hmm. it's okay yeah, it's okay. You you have acknowledged the suffering of all Indian people with this one stone, and now you're good to go. Now you can go go drive around. Yeah, now you can go to Gold Rush days and listen to bluegrass music and um, pan for gold or go into the gold mines, and you feel okay. Rarely do we have a physical representation of like the actual mass of white guilt. And I think I think you're the one who made a comment about this too of like it's almost like every time you're putting another stone, it's like you're solidifying it more and more as a stationary object rather than part of a culture that still exists. It's like, no, this is here. Stay here. Like it becomes even more firm, more physical, less able to be fluid and alive, right? You're making it her debtor with each stone. I just, I, I do want to go back to what we're saying about, you know, I'm not here to try and make anybody feel bad about liking this. I mean, I know this is something that people have said has been passed on from their parents to them and they bring their grandkids there and like, I'm not here to invalidate anybody's experience of, or, you know, finger wag or anything. Um, but just, like I said, I want to look at it optimistically as a way that we can see like people are interested, people wanna know more, people want to get a greater understanding of the the native history of the area and try and use this as a way to get people into more truth. I'm not like we need to take down the pile of stones and take down the historical marker necessarily. I'd like a historical marker for the historical marker. A can context I do that? plaque for the yeah, context plaque. Can I do plaque. that? Is it a la- <laughs> Just I put like so. another one next to it. <laughs> With just the timeline of the history of the story and then, you know, 
I, I feel like we have to look at it in the context because it does reveal a lot about, you know, Native Southern history for better or worse, but it is how it has been perceived thus far by the people who live there. So, yeah, I like to look at it as a launching off point that people can then take another step and say, like, so what really happened? What's the real story? I want to go deeper. I want to know more. so much for joining us for this third season. We have had an amazing time connecting with all of our listeners and talking to all of our guests. We'd especially like to thank Allison Yost for sitting down with us for this last conversation of this season. But don't despair. If you want off-season bonus content, you can become a sponsor or a patron. You can visit our website, aboutsouthpodcast.com, to learn more, or you can visit our social media pages. We will have off-season bonus episodes about sheep in the Appalachian Mountains and the fires of Atlanta and all sorts of other stuff that's come up this season that's just been too amazing to let go, and we just haven't had the time to bring it to you. So we'd love to have your support if you'd like to hear that bonus content. You can also support us at just a couple of bucks and maybe you don't need the bonus content and that's fine too. We will happily take your money. It is the holidays. About South is brought to you from the historic West End of Atlanta, Georgia. Kelly Vines and Ajwa Danso have been my fearless co-producers and Lindsay Baker has helped with our marketing. Our music is by Brian Horton. You can find his music at brianhorton.com. You can find us on our aforementioned website or any of our social media pages, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Sadly, we won't be back next week with a new episode, but we look forward to connecting to all of you and we've already started planning the fourth season. We have so many great things in store. But if you miss us, remember, become a sponsor and we'll send you more content. I'm Gina Kaysen, signing off for the end of the third season of About South. I didn't leave one there when I was there for the record either. I didn't know. I was kind of like felt weird about it. I was like, I don't think I'm going to leave one. I don't think I would leave one either. Because that was, yeah, that was the question when I came back was like, so you went to visit it for the project. Did you leave a stone? And I was like, oh, I didn't even think about it. <laughs> <laughs> um. <laughs>